Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Chef Rossi. She is the catering director, owner, and executive chef of The Raging Skillet, a cutting-edge catering company known for breaking any and all rules. Chef Rossi has earned a reputation as the one to call when it's time to do something different. Her company was voted as one of New York's top wedding caterers by the not for the last nine consecutive years and has now taken their place as a Hall of Fame winner. The Raging Skillet has been featured on the Food Network. The Zagat's Guide has called Chef Rossi the wildest thing this side of the Mason-Dixon line. The Raging Skillet has also won three couples awards for favorite caterer by the Wedding Wire. Go Magazine has voted Chef Rossi as one of the 100 women we love. Chef Rossi and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and her memoir, The Raging Skillet, as well as what's cooking in America's kitchen this holiday season. Good morning, Chef Rossi. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic, Johnny, and I'm really, really happy to be with you today. Wonderful. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. Congratulations on your memoir. It's a very interesting and, I might add, very entertaining read. Love all the black and white classic photos sprinkled all over the book. Love it. Yeah, we kind of had to sprinkle those in there because some of that is like, <laughs> you just, you know, you just have to see it to believe it. I have a very wild and bizarre life with a really bizarre family. So the photos, I think, are a whole lot of fun. It adds texture to it, and it really brought the natural personality to the various characters that you talk about in the book. So that's really fantastic. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Oh, boy. Well, as my mother would say. We have the old hour. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see. I grew up on the Jersey Shore, and... My family was, we were kind of odd. My mother ran the house, what I would call lowly orthodox. So this kind of meant that we kept a a kind of a kosher kitchen. We kept the meat and the dairy dishes separate, Mm -hmm. but we were allowed to have the fish sandwich at McDonald's. That's sort of the best way to explain it. But then (laughs) my father got this idea to buy this little cluster of bungalows in Panama City, Florida, Now, Panama City, Florida was known, and I think is still known, as the Redneck Riviera. (laughs) But Panama City, Florida in the 1970s was like the granddaddy of the Redneck Riviera. And to go there in the summer, you were really, 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 you know, it was about as redneck as you could get. So here's this kosher Jewish family in Panama City in the 70s. And this is how we grew up. We'd be in New mm-hmm. Jersey three, to- three quarters of the year, and we'd be in Panama City for the whole summer. And it was kind of heartbreaking because the only time you really wanted to be on the Jersey Shore, at least back in the 70s, you know, was the summer. Mm-hmm. So we started eating very odd things because trying to find kosher food in Panama City was a bizarre experience. First of all, you're shopping at the Piggly Wiggly, big bags of pork <laughs> rinds. I mean, this anything but kosher food. So we started having these truly bizarre combinations of food. So, and the best example I could give you is that I'm one of the few, if only people you'll ever meet, who could say I've had kishka and grits. I mean, that is a <laughs> nuclear combination. So now my family really was old world. They were older when they had kids. My parents were, were, were kind of like change of life babies. And they had this real strong attitude, a double standard of what boys could do and girls could do. So for as long as I could remember, I raged against it. I was like, girls can do this too. Why can't a girl be president? You know? <laughs> and so it caused a lot of havoc in the family. And I really rebelled. I dyed my hair pink. I became a punk rocker. And 
Ultimately, I ran away from home when I was 16 years old. And I was having a fantastic time as a runaway um, (laughs) until the police busted a party that I threw. And then they called my parents, and my parents had this brilliant idea to ship me off to a Hasidic rabbi my mother had read about in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, to see if he could kind of turn me around. Now, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, in 1981, was probably one of the most dangerous places you could send your little pink-haired daughter. (laughs) Um, But they somehow thought that the Hasidic rabbi was going to turn me around. And what I'm going to say is, he certainly did not. But it got me to New York, and I never stopped hooting and hollering. So, and I always win the most interesting how I came to New York story. You know, people are like in a bar, they're Mm -hmm. like, no one's Mm -hmm. from New York. I mean, my girlfriend's (laughs) from New York, but no one else I know is from New York. But someone will say, you know, I came for love, I came for school, (laughs) I came for this job. And I'll stick my hand up and say, I was sent to live with a Hasidic rabbi in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, who turned around wayward Jewish girls. So I always, always win the drink. (laughs) Uh, From that point, I became a bartender. And from that point, I became a chef. And I just kept going. And the undercurrent of all of it, I would say, was always that same screaming and yelling voice in my head when I was little, (laughs) which was, why can't girls do this? Why can't girls do this? It's like the undercurrent motivator. And here I am. Very interesting story. Well, you just have this sort of a natural tendency to be curious about everything. And that's one thing if I realize about chefs, you have to be curious. You got to be creative because it pushes the limits in terms of creativity, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Well, being a chef, and I don't know why it took people a long time to realize this. Maybe some people always knew, but being a chef is a lot like being an artist. I mean, I I initially came to New York hoping to become a famous painter. And when I started cooking, I realized it was kind of the same parts of my brain getting percolated. So when you have everything that comes together for a great painting, it's just like when everything comes together for a great sauce, like that one, Mm -hmm. not perfect, it's not perfect. And you add that little bit of chili pepper and suddenly it's perfect. It's like Mm -hmm. a great piece of writing or a great painting. It really is an art form. Beautiful. Going back to when you were growing up, what were some of the fondest memories about food with respect to your family? Oh, boy. Well, you have to understand one really important thing, which was Mm -hmm. that I guess it's because my mother was a Depression-era baby. Mm -hmm. Um, There was never any such thing as enough food. She would drag us to these all-you-can-eat buffets and specials and cram so much food into us, you would think she was like making foie gras, you know. She'd be like stuffing us beyond all comprehension. So we were traveling around the world getting very fat, pigging out on these (laughs) all-you-can-eat situations. And I think probably my greatest act of rebellion when it came to my mother Mm -hmm. was to simply stop eating that much. But... (laughs) I do have, I would say my fondest memory about food with my mother was probably also my fondest memory about anything with my mother. She had been a violinist when she was younger, and she'd been very good. But as she got older, she put on a lot of weight. She started having a lot of health problems, and she wasn't that mobile. So she really only played the violin in the living room, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, it was nice to hear, but she kind of lost it because of all of her health issues. And mm-hmm. she found out in the, in the uh, New Jersey State Orchestra, I don't know if it was the Philharmonic or New Jersey State Orchestra, it was called one of these two things. They would rehearse on a weekday, I think it was a Wednesday afternoon, at the Mammoth Art Center. So to go and see them in concert you were spending a good chunk of money to go see them in concert. But if you could sneak in to hear them rehearse, you could hear this fantastic concert for free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this great sub shop in Red Bank, New Jersey, which, believe it or not, is still there, called Elsie's Subs, 
And if anyone has ever had an Elsie sub, they will know what I'm talking about. Just fantastic, <laughs> homey, great subs. And this was decades before the subway chain or any of those things. Mm-hmm. And just as a great thing. So she would get a tuna fish sub, and the two of us would sit in the back listening to the New Jersey State Orchestra rehearse and eat our tuna fish subs and just close our eyes when we were done eating them. It was giant. You were so full. Close our <laughs> eyes and listen to the orchestra. And I would kind of start to fall asleep dancing in the flavors of the tuna fish and the sound of the music. And both of us were so happy. And so this was our date. I think it was, uh, I think it was Wednesday. So it would be like, or maybe it was Tuesday, but it was, this was our, our regular date. And it was really just this fond, fond memory no one else in the family was invited because no one else in the family had the patience to sit through an orchestra <laughs> concert, you know? It's like, and I, you're just delirious. I think they must have put a lot of sugar yeah. in their tuna fish, so you get kind of delirious after a while, but it was a great experience. Wonderful. You mentioned about your mom growing up during the Depression era. That generation has a certain sort of a perspective about food. You do not waste anything, and you're right, you got to eat everything. And now, in some ways, fast forward generations to this day, we don't necessarily have that sense of appreciation of food. It's plentiful, and so I think that we waste quite a bit in today's world. Right, and you're right, absolutely. And so, one of the saddest things is when food is wasted and then there's so many people going hungry. Even in the beginning, when I was first catering, we would always look at all that waste and we'd look for ways to feed people with it. We used to take it back then, uh, a large homeless community lived in Tompkins Square Park in New York. Mm-hmm. And they lived there for so long, they had tents and they could collect mail. And um, so we would finish a party and then we would take all that leftover food to the homeless. And I remember one time I got all of the waiters to keep their tuxedos on. Back then they would mm-hmm. wear tuxedos. And we all lined up in that in the park feeding the homeless and they just couldn't believe it it's like one of the nicest possible experiences <laughs> even now it's like by the time we're done we always feed all the waiters let them take food home you know very generous mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. but when it's left beyond that we take it to the mission and make sure the homeless get it because why you know why not let them have filet mignon tonight you know Right, right. One of the things that I've encountered growing up in the sense of, I don't know what it is. I mean, when we look back in our lives in terms of how do we develop our own recognition of spirituality, how do we connect? My mom used to bring me to the various temples that we go to. And on the way there, you do have the beggars on the streets and the homeless, basically. One of the things that I somehow can connect with them is when I see someone eating, crouching on side of the street and that moment in time and even us if we think about it while we're eating that is in our own little corner of the room we go through this sort of internal points of contemplation within ourselves that is really how we connect with our soul in so many ways and i was able to see the beautiful soul of individuals from that perspective i hope that makes sense well i think that um a lot of things connect you to your soul and i think Mm -hmm. food is really so many things about it. I mean, there's, there's such a thing as putting love in food. And certainly mm-hmm. I've had the experience of eating food that had no love. But there's mm-hmm. also when you're feeding someone, you really are or you really should be giving them love. And so it's a, it's a whole thing. And when people are starving, they're starving for food, but they're also starving for the love that would have come from someone taking care of them and feeding them. You know, it's, it's really a right. terrible cycle when something like that happens. I yeah. mean, I love feeding people, but I especially love feeding people who are hungry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is the energy, the loving energy that goes into the creation of the food, cooking the dish, that makes a difference? I think it does. I mean, you could have two people who cook the same recipe and one person, you're going to get this very pedestrian roast breast of chicken that, you know, (laughs) you could have gotten at any hotel on the highway. Yeah. And the other person, you're going to get something that just feels, it makes you feel transported. And I do think that's got a lot to do with the energy. 
I, you know, I'll tell you a story that might il- illustrate that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I catered a wedding, um, I don't know, 10 years or so ago. And the bride was five months pregnant. She must have been at a stage in her pregnancy where she was very sexually aroused. <laughs> and her groom, you know, he was just going mental over her. And their energy together, like they just knew they couldn't wait for the wedding to be over so they could get to their hotel mm-hmm. room. So they had this really contagious sexual energy around them. So I'm in the kitchen and I'm watching them. And while I'm watching them and really getting into their energy, I'm making the sauce. So now everyone eats the food that I made while I was watching them really getting into their energy. And the next thing you know, everyone at this wedding starts dirty dancing on the dance floor. I mean, the grandmother who was like 85 years old is dirty dancing on the dance floor. So... I'm convinced that it was like a whole sort of like that movie, like Water for Chocolate. It was a whole mm-hmm. chocolate thing happening. And we, you know, <laughs> there was sex from them, sex in the sauce, sex on the dance floor. You know, it was all, all one. <laughs> very, very interesting. When you were growing up, I know you're talking in the book that your brothers and sisters were really not into cooking. But how about food fights? You guys fight over food. I want this and I want that kind of thing. Well, I have to tell you something, because food was so important, money was like, you know, that was one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not waste food, thou shalt not waste money. So there weren't a lot of food fights happening in my family, or else my mother would have lost her brain. But um, I had this experience later on when I became a teenager, where my sister and I decided to experiment with a hallucinogenic drug. And I think it was peyote or something like that. And so we took this and we just thought, oh, we're so bad. Look what we're doing. And so my mother had been boiling a big pot of spinach on the stove. And everything seemed really cool. You know, you wanted to touch everything. So we put our hands in the spinach and it felt so cool. And I said, let's let's throw it on the ceiling. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) So we threw the spinach on the ceiling and then we we uh, laid down on the floor thinking, you know, we're just going to sit here and watch it drop off and how cool mm-hmm. that's going to be. Except I don't know what my mother put in that spinach, but it never came down. It stayed <laughs> up on the ceiling. <laughs> so I learned a few things from this incident. One, that no one in my family ever looked up because – you would anyone would walk in. You would walk in the kitchen and say, "There's spinach right. on the ceiling." Nobody noticed a thing. And I came back for a visit. This is like years later, and the mm-hmm. spinach, the remnants of the spinach, were still on the ceiling. No one had ever looked up. No one had ever <laughs> noticed. So, also, I guess the other thing I learned was that no one ever dusted the ceiling. But you know, <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> Well, the good news is they didn't paint over it. <laughs> no, they didn't. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I thought surely I'm in trouble, but no, nobody noticed. <laughs> One of the things you talked about in the book and during that time, this is interesting. I'm trying to remember, I think that was the time when I just got to the United States, I think, to go to college. This is the big song at the time. Pink Floyd, we don't need no education. Right, 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 right. <laughs> That was definitely one of my theme songs. I had, I had um, a couple of songs I liked to scream walking down the hallway as an mm-hmm. act of rebellion. And one of them was like, we don't need no education. <laughs> oh, my God. That was my, my war cry. And the uh-huh. other one was Pat Benatar's Hell is for Children. Because mm-hmm. hell, hell is for children. I mean, what can I say I, it wasn't exactly Bambi. <laughs> so true. So true. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is Chef Rossi. She is the catering director, owner, and executive chef of The Raging Skillet, a cutting-edge catering company known for breaking 
any and all rules. Her company was voted as one of New York's top wedding caterers by the Knox for the last nine consecutive years and has now taken their place as a Hall of Fame winner. Chef Rossi and I are having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and her memoir, The Raging Skillet, as well as what's cooking in America's kitchen this holiday season. Chef Rossi, why did you decide yes. to write The Raging Skillet? Oh, my God. Well, um, first of all, I just have to tell you something real fast, and then I'm going to mm-hmm. answer that, which <laughs> is that we just were told that we won uh, the not best wedding caterer um, 2018 for Manhattan. So that means we've now won 10 years in a row. It's pretty Fantastic. awesome. Congratulations. I get to say that too in public. So there you have it. <laughs> it just happened. Fantastic. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. So the reason I decided to write a memoir was I kind of had to. I mean, I've had such a bizarre life that. Um, I really had to tell the story. And I've been doing this radio show on Cape Cod on WOMR and also on WFMR called Bite This. And on the radio show, I read a memoir about my bizarre life and follow it with recipes. So I've been doing the show for 14 years and it really got me into the habit of writing memoir. But also like some of the stories are so crazy and I would tell people, and they would laugh hysterically, and they, or they'd be shocked and horrified. <laughs> and they're always, my whole life, they're like, you have to write this down, you have to write this down. So I've been working on the book on and off forever, but it really kind of came together finally to where I wanted it to be, um, I think back in 2013. And then it was published a couple of years later by the Feminist Press, which mm-hmm. is also kind of suited that voice in my head. Girls can do it. Girls can do it. So here's the feminist press saying, yes, girls yeah. can do it. <laughs> and then I went on the world's longest book tour. I think people go on these book tours for like a few months. And mm-hmm. I went on it for uh, two years, just the longest bookstore. You know what, though? Um, on the tour, people kept going to it and saying, oh, my God, you have to come to this place and that place. And so I just kept getting calls. I guess I'm something like the Henny Youngman of the book tour. You know, it just sort of worked out. <laughs> Besides that, they probably want you to cook for them and they can taste a few things while you talk. Well, you know what's interesting is the first stop on the book tour. So that was mm-hmm. the Javits Center for this giant book event, the BEA. Or right, whatever the this BEA, book Expo yes, International. International. Right. There's thousands of people. Um, this is the very first thing I'm doing for the book. It wasn't even published yet. It was the, the early galley we were mm-hmm. I was signing and giving out. I thought, well, I really want to get a crowd. Like, what can I do that no one else could do? Well, first of all, people would come anyway because they like when chefs do their memoirs. But right. I decided to bring big trays of peanut butter and bacon sandwiches. So the word got out that not only was there a chef signing her uh, galley, but there was free food. And so <laughs> this huge line forms. Now, there happened to be a playwright who that day was walking around looking for the perfect memoir, especially a foodie mm-hmm. memoir, to adapt for the stage because he'd, had, he'd done it before and with a lot of success, he wanted to do it again. Um, so he heard about the free food and I think he smelled the bacon and followed the trail <laughs> of the smell of bacon. And he got online with everyone else. And by the time he got to the end of the line, he said he wanted to turn my book into a play. And so he looked a little crazy. Like he was dressed in this brown shade, like the UPS or the Unabomber might wear, you know? <laughs> and I, I was thinking I better be nice to him or maybe he'll hurt me, you know? But it turned out he was the real deal, a really, really brilliant mm-hmm. playwright. And we had a thousand conversations later. Um, the play evolved as much from the book as from those thousands of conversations and stories about my mm-hmm. family. And it premiered in Hartford, Connecticut at Theater Works. And I think that they 
thought it's just going to be a sleeper. You know, we'll give half the staff a vacation and see what happens. Maybe it'll pay the electric <laughs> bill, something like that. But they had misjudged what happens when you give the audience free food, I think. <laughs> anyway, it wound up being this sold-out crazy smash for five weeks, and the audience went nuts for it, like standing ovations every night. And it was like hysterical laughter, but there mm-hmm. were also parts where people cry. Almost everyone cries in a couple of parts of it, including me. And Aww. then, I mean, you know, it was just a, a, an amazing experience. I mean, looking at the stage at this Emmy award-winning actress named Marilyn Sokol playing my mother, and this Broadway actress playing me. I mean, it was just crazy. So from there, it went on to Wellfleet, to the Wellfleet Harbor Mm -hmm. Actors Theater, and the same thing happened, this crazy sold-out smash. And from there, it went to the New Jewish Theater in St. Louis, and Mm -hmm. again, crazy over-the-top smash, and I was worried. I thought, oh, well, people in St. Louis, maybe they'll be conservative. Like, no, they were like the wildest audience ever. <laughs> so we're hoping, of course, that it'll come to New York. Off-Broadway mm-hmm. would be perfect. We just need the right person to see the show and or read the script and believe in it. Um, right. It's, but it's been this wild experience. So not only did I have a crazy, crazy over-the-top two-year-long book tour, but it became a play that's still traveling around the country. And it's just, it's just been a dream come true. So as a play has a drastically different name from the book. So the book is The Raging mm-hmm. Skillet. The mm-hmm. play is Raging Skillet. But it is totally crazy. You're going to love it. <laughs> you have a chance to see it. You're going to love it. Looking forward to it. That sounds fantastic. Coming back to... The catering business. Why did mm-hmm. you decide to start your own catering business? Well, it's interesting. Um, when I started cooking, I mean, I, I didn't want to become a professional chef. Or mm-hmm. But I was and I was one of those old school kind of bartenders where I'd have the same 30 drunks that would never leave. <laughs> and the kitchen would close, and I'd be stuck with these 30 drunks and lighting their cigarettes and telling them jokes. But there was no food. There was just Pepperidge Farm goldfish, which is really, really not something you want to see repeated on the floor or on the bar. But occasionally people would get sick from not having anything to eat. Mm-hmm. So I would go into the kitchen looking for the leftovers from the lunch shift and the dinner shift, um, there would always be mozzarella, there'd always be corn chips, there'd always be buffalo chicken, things like that. And I would invent the nacho of the night. So buffalo chicken nachos, maybe tuna mm-hmm. melt nachos, you know. And those things are kind of fun and zingy now, but they were really considered wild back then. And mm-hmm. um, so I started to get this cult following for my crazy, wacky, late-night nacho pig-out thing, you know. So it's not that it was like four-star cuisine, but first of all, it was free. And second of all, nothing tastes better to a drunk at midnight than a a plate of (laughs) buffalo chicken nachos. I got to tell you that. (laughs) So from there, I said, all right, well, I guess I'm going to really learn how to cook. So back then, they did not want to see women in the kitchen. I mean, which I never understood. You know, you like you love your mother's cooking, you love your wife's cooking, but you just don't want to see her get paid for it. <laughs> but I had to go through these terrible, terrible jobs where the men were really cruel and abusive and it was painful and uncomfortable and no one was ever treated right. The men didn't treat each other right. They yelled and disrespected and cursed and no one was nice to anybody. And the front of the house and the back of the house were enemies and the kitchen would never feed the waiters and the waiters would never, you know, bring drinks to the kitchen and everyone hated each other. So I thought one day I was like suffering and I just thought, I got to start my own catering business. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't about the business or the events. It was more that I just wanted to be treated nicely and I wanted to treat people nicely. So I guess you would call that, you know, my aha moment, you know, a little light bulb. And so I started doing events and little by little, I still was working for other people. 
And then one day I sort of crossed a line where I had enough events where I didn't have to work for anyone else and mm-hmm. never looked back. That's a beautiful story. Beautiful, Thank beautiful you. story. What's interesting, though, I think at the time when you started all this, if you think about it very carefully, you're right, because it's always been sort of a not necessarily male-dominated world, but technically speaking, everything starts out with the guys, right? They do this thing, that thing, and so forth. But for a very long time, you do have those wonderful chefs, but it's like home chef. You're looking at Julie Charles, you're looking at Martha Stewart, and so forth. And so, no, yeah, you can cook cook at home. <laughs> and then people are asking, no, I want that kind of food at my events, right. not the cookie cutter kind right. of thing. And so that's the wonderful situation where you are at the right place at the right time. And obviously, having said that, it's still personal ingenuity and creativity that propels you to where you're at. That's right. Absolutely. But it helps if your motivator is kindness, no? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like true. a lot of the people I know who started catering businesses, their motivator was just money. Right. And, you know, if I get it, money's a great motivator. It certainly motivates half the world or three quarters of the world. But if it's the only motivator, then you're going to have kind of a shallow experience, you know? Right, right, right. So true. I remember my Southern Belle mom told me cooking is like motherly love. It has to be done with love. And when you do that, people can feel the energy. And she's one of those people that, my God, she starts a week before Thanksgiving or before any major holidays, that is, and start preparing. And so my Malaysian mom, I mean, we're talking about when she was old enough, she was in Kitchen 101 at six years old, learning to cook. Oh, wow. And I mean, it was just that pure idea, the fun, the ability to create. So in reading your book, that's what I gather. And it was very exciting from that perspective. It sort of reminded me of the moms that I knew that loved the kitchen from that perspective. Right, right. You're right. That's how it should be. I mean, so, all cooking, mm-hmm. not just your mom's cooking, should really have the love laced through it. It just should. That's correct. That's true. Coming back to you in the sense that as you grew up and as you dabble with so many different things, Somewhere along the line, you're talking about being that rebel and coming back to that song by Pink Floyd. There is Mm -hmm. a slow shift in your paradigm. So Mm -hmm. kind of walk us through that because I think that is something that parents are worried about sometimes because like, I think my kid's going off in the wrong tangent here. (laughs) I don't know whether she or she can bounce back. And then not only that, to individuals themselves that sort of felt like maybe, oh my gosh, I missed the boat. That's it. Party is over. And it's not necessarily the truth. Well, my my initial big motivator was rebellion. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents wanted girls to do this and boys to do that. Nice Jewish girls should be like this and boys <laughs> can do whatever they want because they're boys. So I was rebelling against that in a rage. I mean, it's not a coincidence, yeah. I suppose. I became the raging skillet, you know, because I was <laughs> certainly raging and rebelling was a great motivator. But Mm-hmm. At some point, I had to also realize that if your motivator is just rebellion, you don't actually know what it is that you want. And so, for instance, you know, I was like screaming and yelling to punk rock and dyeing my hair pink right. and, you know, ranting and raving. But in the privacy of my own room, when no one was looking and no one was listening, I had to admit that my dirty little secret was that I loved Barbara Streisand. You know, but I couldn't <laughs> share it because it would have ruined my reputation. You know, so I'm out there going like, "God save the queen!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. She ain't a human being. You know, singing that. I get home and I'm like, "Oh, memories, la 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 la." There you la. go. Anyway, you get it. So ultimately, certain things morphed into something else. So that Mm -hmm. rebellion morphed into this undercurrent of feminism, of wanting to do what's right for women, of wanting women to get a fair shake, of wanting the world to accept that women were just as good and sometimes better than Mm -hmm. men, you know. And that became, it's sort of instead of rebelling, it became more of of an undercurrent of fighting for what's right. And... I also have this thing I've always had, which was kind of a fighting for what's right in general, for 
humanitarian issues, for decency, mm-hmm. for goodness. You know, it's a lot of really, really, truly horrible things happening in the country right now and in the world. And you know, and my humanitarian alarm is going off all the time. You know, just this morning I woke up and the first thing out of my mouth was, that's not right. But <laughs> that's not something about myself I want to change. All of right. the rebelling, I'm happy it morphed into more of a just fighting for justice kind of thing. But right. um, I don't really want to change that. Like if someone were to say that I'm Norma Ray or something like that, I would, I would just love that. That's the best compliment you could give. <laughs> so true. You also write quite a bit as a food writer, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. you host your radio show. Has that changed your perspective about food and the food industry in some ways? Well, writing about food, I wouldn't say it's changed the way that I feel about food, but it, it, it's more illustrated something I knew anyway, which was that mm-hmm. food is art, you know, and being a chef yeah. is like being an artist. So when I get to write about food and describe it, like right now, um, I'm actually looking at the water and it's beautiful and I can see the sky and the, the clouds spreading out like these streaks of gray and white fluff. But it's also kind of awesome to describe food, to write about what it's like to make it and write about what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Now, I always hated following recipes and I always hated the way recipes were written because mm-hmm. They just kind of reminded me of why I hated math and science. You know, it's just like <laughs> keep someone telling me what to do. So I've always written about food as if everyone who read what I wrote felt the same way I did. So try to make it easy access instead of being very precise. Do a smidgen of this and a handful of that and put the fun into it. Make it your own, you know, just mm-hmm, kind of turn mm-hmm. it around and, ma- and make it more of an easy access, user-friendly thing. So I guess probably, you know, I'm like more Macintosh than IBM, you know, <laughs> when it comes to food writing. That's interesting. Well, let's talk about kitchen stuff here. How much is a dash? A dash is kind of like a smidgen, only it's wet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and how about a pinch? A pinch is kind of like two wet dashes. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's how I cook. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's also like if you're my mother, a smidgen Mm -hmm. is like, you know, a handful, you know, like everyone's Mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. But it's meant to just have a little bit of fun. That's right. There you go. In the end, it's all about in the taste and the visual. I'm a visual cook. I have to take a look at how the finished product looks like, and I can copy that. That's right. (laughs) I mean, when I would read recipes, you know, I would always kind of, and I have to look at them all the time because everything you do at the Raging Skillet is written to order. So a lot of times people will ask me for something we've never done before. And Mm -hmm. when they do, I will look at like 10 or 12 recipes, kind of put them all into my brain, and then try to pull out the essence of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I like to look at them, just kind of scanning over recipes and pulling out the essence. Pretty interesting. Very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. What are some of the craziest memories you have as a wedding caterer? Well, let's see. Um, there was a bride and groom, and the bride had some kind of weird thing about bathtubs. So, I don't know what it was, but she really loved bathtubs in every possible way. So she wanted to have all the food served from a bathtub. And so we (laughs) kind of worked it out, you know. We, like, Mm -hmm. filled it up Mm -hmm. with ice, covered it with a raw bar, and covered Mm -hmm. it with the food. And it wound up being kind of awesome, except, you know, later on when the ice melted and she got drunk and she put the groom (laughs) in it, you know. That wasn't so awesome. But generally, generally it was pretty awesome, you know. Very, very interesting. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is Chef Rossi. She is the catering director, owner, and executive chef of The Raging Skillet, a cutting-edge catering company known for breaking any and all rules. Her company was voted as one of New York's top wedding caterers by The Knock.
for the last 10 consecutive years and has now taken their place as a Hall of Fame winner. Chef Rossi and I are having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and her memoir, The Raging Skillet, as well as what's cooking in America's kitchen this holiday season. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Chef Rossi, let's talk about your mm-hmm. two cents. I love that. The true art of wedding food. Please share that two cents with us. Well, here's the thing. And when I first got into the business, wedding food looked pretty, but it really tasted like linoleum. <laughs> and it was, I don't know what it was. And no one would ever marinate anything or crust it or give it that extra step. They just cared about how it looked. It's a, you would say, well, that looks gorgeous. And then you put it in your mouth and you would have one, maybe a second of pleasure, you know, just a mm-hmm. one or two mm-hmm. dimensional pleasure. And sometimes you'd put it in your mouth and it really just tasted like nothing. That was what happened more likely. (laughs) And so I thought, why does that have to be? Like, why can't wedding food taste as great as a great restaurant or as great as your mom when she's making something and she likes you, you know? (laughs) And so we started doing these weddings. And I didn't start out as a wedding caterer. I started out more as like a corporate caterer, sort of doing other kinds of things. People say, I can't believe this is wedding food. It actually tastes good. <laughs> and so that's really been my mission from the start when it comes to weddings is just to have really great food. And the mm-hmm. other thing I learned because I worked for a lot of other people before I started my own thing was you, especially in the restaurant business, but you have uh, this horrible combination of high stress, high adrenaline, and boredom. The reason is because you have to cook that swordfish really fast. You have to make 10 mm-hmm. of them immediately or 100 of them. But it's the thousandth time or the 1,200th time you've made that swordfish because it's on a set menu. Right. So I knew if I had set menus and I had to do the same food all the time, I was going to get madly bored, and it's really hard to love the food if you're madly bored by it. So mm-hmm. I came up with a policy that we would write a menu, a new menu for every client every time. So every time we go to work, it may very well be a menu we've never done before or done that combination before, and the client gets to give me their magical wish list. And we say, like, Mm -hmm. what would you eat if you could eat anything? Like, you know, pretend you're going to jail. What would your last meal be? You know, well, that's not a good thing to say to someone getting married, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, you know. (laughs) And so they send me their magical love list, and then I write the menu around it. And people ask me Mm -hmm. for things. Like I had a couple recently, and the groom was like, tell her, tell her. And the bride didn't want to tell me. And I'm like, what? He goes, She's got a, a kind of a food thing you should know about. Well, the food <laughs> thing was that she really liked sweet breakfast cereal in unusual places. Hmm. Now, that's something they really were talking to the right person because that's like right up my alley. And um, <laughs> I thought, oh, we can really play with this. So there, they had mac and cheese fritters rolled in Kellogg's cornflakes. They had dessert was um, vanilla pudding martinis with Captain Crunch. You know, it was like, it was perfect (laughs) for them. It was perfect for me too, because now I'm selling vanilla pudding martinis with Captain Crunch to everyone. It's fabulous. (laughs) Were there a situation where it was like totally out of this world, what they asked for? Oh, well, sometimes people go a little too far. You know, I, I'm like very honest. I'm a, I'm a terrible, terrible liar. So I don't even try, <laughs> you know, like if you, if I tried to lie to you, you would know immediately. So no one would ever pick me for a poker game. Trust me. So I thought, well, I, I'll just have to be in business being completely honest every time. And mm-hmm. I've had people listen to me on the phone and just be like, I can't believe you just told them that. And once in a <laughs> while, someone will ask me for something that, really just sounds horrible and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell them I'll give you an example I had yeah. a party it was a large event I was doing for a very wealthy woman she was the very first person very first client I had who owned a cell phone she must have had the first cell phone out you know back when people were like holy shit holy whoops almost <laughs> sleep myself <laughs> oh, I got it holy crap 
<laughs> and so she's going one way uh, in her convertible to the Hamptons, and her party mm. planner's going the other way in his convertible, and she conferences me into this cell phone call. Uh-huh. And her epiphany was that she wanted to have, in this beautifully designed dinner, she suddenly wanted to have raspberry jelly um, brushed on the lamb. And it mm-hmm. really would have been horrible in a thousand <laughs> different ways. Not to say you can't have a lamb and raspberry sauce, but trust me, with this menu, it would have been like barf. Right. And so I'm listening, listening. I, I say, I'm, I go, I'm sorry, I just can't do that. And you can almost mm-hmm. hear like the 10 car pile up on the LIE because <laughs> no one had ever said no to this spoiled little brat. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the party planner's like, well, why on earth not? Because that's what he is. He's a professional tushy kisser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, I said, because, well, because it's gross. <laughs> and she's like, oh, okay. And that was the end of that. Then we yeah. went on to have a great relationship, and she loved that mm-hmm. I told her the truth, and that was the end of that. You know, yeah. of course, afterwards I thought about it, and I, and I came up with a way that I could have done it that was a little less gross, but it would <laughs> still been gross. <laughs> It's interesting, though, what you mentioned right there is the fact that they want you to tell them the truth because they're hiring you mm-hmm. for your professionalism. They want to hear mm-hmm. what they need to hear versus what they think you want them to hear. And that's good. And that's why I think that relationship is genuine. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They want you mm-hmm. to tell them the truth, but sometimes maybe <laughs> they would like you to tell them the truth while simultaneously giving, uh, giving them a foot massage and complimenting yeah, their hair, yeah. you know? Oh, sure. Of course. <laughs> That's true. Very true. What was your favorite catering moment that highlighted your entire catering career? Well, every time anyone asks me that, I actually don't have <laughs> And now I've been catering for 30 years, and it, I've had mm-hmm. all sorts of adventures. And no matter what, it always goes back to the same moment, yeah. which was that I was hired to cater a VIP event for the Vagina Monologues. Mm-hmm. So it was all celebrities, Oprah Winfrey, Glenn Close, Whoopi Goldberg, Rosie Perez. You know. And it was at the Hammerstein Ballroom in, in New York. It was a really big deal. But the trick was that I was asked to do all the food anatomically correct. So that meant I would be doing the food for 600 plus celebrities and VIPs, and it all had to look like vaginas, which was a fantastic challenge, one that I was like really up for. And, you know, I mean, I've done lots of crazy things since then and before, but nothing quite that fun. The greatest moment was when I, I built this giant vagina out of dried fruit with like wheels and wheels of the outer labia was dried apricot <laughs> and one strategically placed sun-dried cranberry for the money spot, you know, mm-hmm. also known as the money spot because I will definitely give $55 to any man who could actually find it, you know, the money spot. <laughs> and in walks Susan Sarandon who giggles hysterically and pops the sun-dried cranberry in her mouth. And I said right then and there to my waiters, that's it. That is my all-time favorite catering moment. It's been like 20 years since then, you know, and it still is yeah. my all-time favorite catering moment. It's just priceless. <laughs> Fantastic. How do we find love with food, and how do we find joy and laughter in the kitchen? Well, I guess it starts with treating everyone around you with love and joy. You know, like I have a policy in my company that no one's allowed to yell at anyone. Because when mm-hmm. I started cooking professionally, everyone yelled at everyone. So I try right. to keep it kind of a zen kitchen. And so if someone yells, then, you know, they really are in trouble. I mean, everyone treats <laughs> each other nicely. And when someone comes in, I mean, I try out new people all the time. But when someone comes in and they're rude or cold or negative, they're never invited back. And that's the end mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you're cooking, what helps me, actually, and I have to do this a lot, sometimes – I have a client that's just really horrible, you know, really pretentious and show-offy. And I'm like, why on earth are they hiring me? I hate pretentious show-offy <laughs> people. But once in a while I get a client like that. 
And so if I think about them, you know, it's hard to put the love in the food. So what I do is I look out at the people that are there and I find someone. Usually what works the best for me is a little old lady that always works. Or sometimes it's a cute little kid or a couple Mm -hmm. that's in love. You know, I find someone and I tell myself I'm cooking just for them. And then I can really, really, really get my love on. So I think in the in the private home, like how do you put love in food, I guess is just to think of it as an extension of, of maybe who you are in that moment. You know, like right. you have some love flowing in you. Maybe that could come out into that sauce. Like you're making sauce. I think for me making sauces are my favorite because you really get mm-hmm. to play with them and adjust them. And so many times you'll make a sauce that's like almost perfect, but it just needs something to push it over the edge. You could even say out out loud, like, how can I love this up? You know, (laughs) and you'll you'll find a way. That's true. Very true. I'm glad you mentioned about the culture that you wanted to create and that you have created actually for your team. One of the people that you have on board is Chef Nico, who always ends up with Sweetie. And so I thought that was wonderful. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was one of the first people that I had that conversation with, loving up the food. Um, right. He, I haven't seen him in a long time, actually. He went back to his native country some time ago. But mm-hmm. I have been blessed to have some chefs working with me who understood. And my yeah. favorite, who wasn't, wasn't in the book for very long because, unfortunately, he passed away from AIDS in the 80s, which was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But he, more than anyone I've ever met, really understood this thing about loving food and living your life. His name was Mm -hmm. Adam Barnett. He was a beautiful, beautiful man. And he put so much love into everything he did and everyone around him. It was absolutely contagious. I think that energy, ironically, people don't realize when you cook with love, it just sort of permeates to everything that you serve. Right, absolutely. And everyone around you. I mean, it's contagious. Mm -hmm. You know, when you cook without any love, then I really do think you can taste it, you know? (laughs) That's right. So true. So what's the hottest dish for this holiday season? But I'm going to tell you something. I'm Mm -hmm. completely allergic to what's hot and chic and trendy and hip. I mean, I've Mm -hmm. been dressing the same way pretty much since 1978. I have a pair of old beat-up Levi's and black leather ankle (laughs) boots and Right now, I have a sleeveless T-shirt that says The Clash on it. You know, that was absolutely (laughs) something I would have worn in 1978. And the moment I would have gotten into any fashion trends would be the moment I would be always out of fashion because who can keep up? So Mm -hmm. I just kind of see food like the way I see Levi's. Just Mm -hmm. find something great and stick with it. Now, what I will tell you is that People have been asking me now more than ever before for mm-hmm. food that's healthier, and that comes up a lot. And people have been asking me now more than ever before for things that are paleo. That's a really big deal. Right. And mm-hmm. I have never, ever been asked by so many people so often to make things out of cauliflower. Um, so I'm avoiding the whole food trend thing and just telling mm-hmm. you it's always great to try to make things a little healthy. And if paleo is happening, it's not a bad thing. You know, gluten-free, what would a caveman eat? It's not a bad thing. <laughs> and cauliflower is always awesome. We served mm-hmm. cauliflower rice for a wedding recently, and it was so much better. Instead of just having rice, which isn't doing a lot for you to have something that's all vegetable <laughs> like that. Right. So I think my advice for a hot thing to do this holiday season is to permanently avoid anything that's a hot thing to do. Very, very interesting. That's true. I mean, you just want to have something healthy and get the job Mm -hmm. done. In the end, stick with the traditional stuff because once a year, why not? (laughs) Well, yeah, like if you're having a party for Valentine's Day, maybe you want to do some weird, strange, cool thing. But if you're having Mm -hmm. like a holiday supper, people want to see roast turkey or roast ham. You know, Mm -hmm. by the way, you could take a whole head of cauliflower and make it look like a little roast turkey. It's kind of trippy. You just Mm -hmm. cover it in spices and yogurt and cook it until it browns on the outside, and you get this thing that looks kind (laughs) of like a little turkey, and it's kind of crazy, but it's good. 
That's it. It's all in the presentation. That's what it takes. Right, exactly. <laughs> Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? All right. Well, first of all, you can go to theragingskillet.com. You can find me on Instagram at Chef Rossi NYC, on Facebook at Chef, at Chef Rossi NYC, on Twitter at Chef Rossi. The book is always on Amazon, but I love supporting independent bookstores, so please go to yours, and if they don't have it, they will get it for you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be at the Murder on the Beach bookstore in Delray, Florida on January 9th at 6.30 p.m. for this really fun event by the Women's National Book Association. They're going to, I think it's free if you're a member of the Women's National Book Association, Mm -hmm. The WNBA, but not basketball. And it's $10 <laughs> if you're not. It's going to be great. They're going to have people bring in cool little appetizers they make, and then I'll, I'll judge them, and there'll be a Chef Rossi Award. It's super great. And the play is having a one-night-only staged reading at the Central mm -hmm. Square Theater in Cambridge. That's right outside of Boston, Cambridge. Or is Cambridge part of Boston? I always forget. And that's December 17th at 7 p.m., so it's mm -hmm. going to be a chance. It's part of a production they do called That's What She Said. And you know I want it to be in anything called That's What She Said. But <laughs> it'll give you a chance to see this awesome play, Raging Skillet. So you have to buy my book, The Raging Skillet. Hit an independent bookstore if you can, and if not, go to Amazon. And you have to go see the play, and you have to immediately call your theater and tell them that they have to call me and produce the play. And if you have a theater, call me yourself. There you go. Wonderful. Do you have any advice for people who have aspirations to start their own catering business? Well, the first thing I would tell you is go out and work for somebody else. Doing it as a low-paid intern or a no-paid intern, go work mm -hmm. for someone else for a while and see if you're cracked up to do it because it is very painful and it's not as glamorous as it's made out to be. I mean, there's lots of onion chopping and suffering, you know, so... You really have to go work for someone else first and see if you're up for it. So true, though. What can we expect from you in 2019? Well, I certainly hope that the play will be coming to you wherever you are. And we're really hoping eventually it's going to go off Broadway. And certainly it also has to go to New Jersey, where I'm from. How can it not? So there's some <laughs> fantastic theaters in New Jersey. I love the Two River Theater in Red Bank, so... You never know. It'd be really great if it came there. And it really has to go to Florida because that's where all my people are. I don't know what it is about Jews in Florida, but um, <laughs> totally has to go to Los Angeles. It has to go everywhere. So I'm hoping that the play will come to you. And I have just finished the first draft of my second book, which will really knock you out. It's a whole memoir about just my time living with the Hasidic Jews in Crown Heights in the early 80s and what it was like to be a punk rocker living with the Hossies. and It's kind of something you have to read. I'm tentatively calling it Escape from Kingston Avenue, but I'm considering changing the name, and I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but it's juicy. So hopefully there will be a book for you to read soon. You'll get to read the second book and see the play, and who knows, maybe there will be another play. Fantastic. Since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Sure. Um, in the book, I have a chapter about my experience at Ground Zero after 9-11, um, which really was a life-changing experience. And the recipe in the book, I think, kind of says it all. It's called Peace Stew. It serves all of humankind. Mix one part love, one part compassion, one part hope, and one part forgiveness. Hope for a better tomorrow. Fantastic. That's really wonderful. Perfect. Chef Rossi, thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, December 4th. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor-in-chief for Chicken Soup for the Soul. Amy and I will be having a conversation about their latest release just in time for the holiday season, Chicken Soup for the Soul, The Wonder of Christmas, 101 Stories About the Joy of the Season. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. 
Chef Rossi, it has been a true pleasure, a very happy holidays and joyous season to you and your loved ones. Thank you again and have a blessed day. You too. Had a blast. Thank you. Bye-bye. of Macy's Cyber Week specials are here and ready for gifting online and in store. Like boots and booties for her, buy one, get one free. Mixers, air fryers, and more, 20% plus an extra 20% off. And find gifts for him and her, coats, sweaters, tops, 50 to 60% off. Macy's Cyber Week specials now through Wednesday. Savings off regular prices, exclusions apply. Macy's Star Rewards now offers benefits everyone can enjoy no matter how they pay. Sign up for free in store or at macy's.com slash star rewards.